I want to go ahead and say uh, good morning again. And if you have your Bibles, if you can go ahead and open with me, please, to Colossians chapter 1. Colossians chapter 1. And there's a reason why we begin every Sunday during this time by saying, if you have your Bibles, because I want to encourage you to bring your Bibles. I want to point you to the Bible to realize And I pray to show you that what we're saying here at the pulpit, we're not making up. This is coming straight from the Word of God. So I want to encourage you in that. And then we put the verses on the screen as well, just so you know that. And just want to encourage you in that. We're not making this up. We're taking this from the Word of God, trusting the Word of God, believing um, His Word. So with that said, welcome to week four of a series that has us walking through the book of Colossians, a series on which we are purposefully and deliberately walking through this letter written by the Apostle Paul while he was in prison in Rome and he's writing to the church at Colossus. And what he's doing in this letter is lifting high, first of all, the supremacy of Christ, that Christ, as we saw last week, is the supreme one, but also the sufficiency of Christ, that Christ is enough. He's enough for everything that we go through. We don't have to turn, for them, you don't have to turn to Rome for your hope. For us, we don't have to turn to other things. Christ is enough. And as we get started this morning, I want us to consider, and and we're probably going to go a little different direction than what you think we're going to go, but I want us to consider the divided society that we live in. We live in a culture that is divided. We don't have to go very far to figure that out, but I'm going in a different direction than probably what you think. Um, But some of our divisions, when we think of as a society, some of our divisions are small, local, I'm probably a little silly. And what I mean by that is there are some things that divide us. Um, For example, some of you in here are Gator fans. Others of you in here are Seminole fans. And those are kind of a dividing thing. Now, both of you are out of God's will, and you've missed the mark because you're not a Bulldog fan. But that's kind of a a thing that brings division. Some of you prefer McDonald's over Burger King. Some of you prefer Coke over Pepsi, Cracker Barrel over Famous Amos, or Left Twix over Right Twix. I I I mean, we have all these things that that we prefer, and some of these divisions are um, local, they're small, they're silly. And the reason, and, and let me just say this, There's also divisions that are small and silly that exist even in the church, so just so we know that. And they're silly because the same reason the divisions I just listed, they wouldn't play out the same way in any other part of the world. I mean, can you imagine going to Africa saying, hey, guys, do you like McDonald's or Burger King? I mean, just think about that and and or going to India saying, hey, bulldogs or gators, which which one do you like? I mean, they're going to say, well, gators will kill me, so yeah. you know, I mean, what, what are we going to do in, in that? So we have those little small, silly divisions, but then we have other divisions that are larger and more meaningful to us. For example, political convictions. We throw around the words Republican, Democrat, liberal, conservative. Um, we use these terms in, in dialogue. We've invested a whole lot of meaning in, into, those, um, into those thoughts, into those dialogues. A whole lot more passion kind of comes in when we talk about uh, politics and the things that we believe in. And then, and then we think about more meaningful divisions, even more meaningful to get this, more meaningful divisions, even more meaningful than politics as we think about um, religion and religious thoughts and, and beliefs. And um, some of us have neighbors that are of different religious worldviews. Some of us have neighbors that believe in nothing. Um, and we have those thoughts, and there's even more investment in that, the way we view faith. And 
we would probably put, and let me just say this, we should probably put more value on faith than we, sh- than we do on football or even politics. So let me just say that. We should put more value on faith than we do on our football team. Or we should put more value on faith than we do on our politics. Or let me just say this. Let me just throw this in, in the ring. I know last Sunday the, the talk of um, Jacksonville was people taking knees and not taking knees. And I have my own personal views on that. But let me just say this. If that bothers you more than the fact that we live in a world where God is devalued every single day, if that bothers you more than the fact that God is devalued, then you might have your priorities mixed up. Just saying that, you might just have your priorities mixed up. And so think about all these divisions, and then let me just say this. All of these divisions, the small and the silly, the um, large and the meaningful, all of these divisions pale in comparison to the great division that exists between a holy God and sinful man. Can't even compare with a division, the separation that exists between a holy God and sinful man. Meaning, because we are born with a sinful nature that we inherited through Adam and Eve, we are born separated, we are born alienated from God. We're not sinners because we sin, we sin because we're born sinners. It's the whole picture here. And because of this alienation from God, we we once walked in, hopefully we once walked in, maybe some are still walking in that alienation, still walking in a separation from God, but the, the great hope of that is that God sent a reconciler. God sent one who destroyed the division. God sent one who built a bridge where there was nothing but a, a gap, and his name is Jesus. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. He is the one in whom all the fullness of God is pleased to dwell as we looked at last week. And then think about this. Think about the division that exists concerning him, concerning Jesus, and the notion that has crept into so many belief systems that Jesus was just a good moral teacher. So just think about that division of what do you view on, what's your view on Jesus? Well, he's a good moral teacher. And let me just say this. In case you ever have that conversation and somebody says Jesus was a good prophet or a good moral teacher, that thought is ridiculous. And let me tell you why it's ridiculous. The problem with that stance is the teachings of Jesus. So the teachings of Jesus exclude him from ever being a good teacher if you don't believe in what he's saying. Think about what he claimed um, in his teaching. So in his teaching, Jesus claimed to be God. He claimed to be eternal. He claimed to be the only way to God. He claimed to be able to lay his life down and pick it up again. So if you don't believe that what Jesus taught was true, then there's no way he could be a good teacher, let alone a moral teacher, right? If he's lying to us, he can't be moral. If, if he's not telling the truth, he can't be good. So the, the picture is we have to understand. C.S. Lewis said it better than anyone else could. He said, Jesus is either a lunatic, he's a liar, or he is Lord. He's either lunatic, he's a liar, or he is Lord. And we choose to believe he is Lord of all. And so this morning what we're going to do is we're going to kind of leap off from last week where we looked at who Christ is in the book of Colossians. And now this morning we're going to look at what Christ has done for us. We're going to see that God created us for his glory. Unfortunately, because we're born sinners, we prefer our own glory over God's glory. Yet God has in Christ graciously 
reconciled us back to himself because of his love for us. So we're going to jump in this morning. I'm going to go ahead and ask you if you're able to stand as we honor God's word. We're going to read Colossians 1, verses 21 through 23, and look at this picture of us being reconciled in Christ. So verse 21 says this, And you who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. If indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, became a minister. Let's pray together. Father, we approach your word, and we want to do so humbly. We want to do so expectantly, God, knowing that you are speaking through your word. Holy Spirit, you're speaking, God. You're, you're attending the word. You're, you're showing us. You're illuminating our eyes to see. You're convicting us, God. You're moving within us. Lord, we just pray that you would just show us today what we need to see and what we need to hear. God, help us to respond in right ways to you, O oh God. In your name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. So when we think about this picture of reconciliation, let me just lay this out here real quick. There, there are five terms that kind of summarize, um, or five New Testament terms that kind of summarize salvation for us um, in Christ. And those terms are, we don't have them on the screen, but those terms are justification, redemption, forgiveness, reconciliation, and adoption. So justification, redemption, forgiveness, reconciliation, and adoption. And let me just unpack those real quick for you. So the first term is justification, which is a legal term, which means in justification, we, the sinner, stand before God as accused and guilty, and we are declared righteous and not guilty by God. So Justification declared not guilty by God, even though we're guilty. The second term is redemption. In redemption, the sinner stands before God as a slave of sin and is granted freedom because of a ransom that was paid. And we know that ransom was the precious blood of Jesus. So we are redeemed. The third term is forgiveness. Whereas the sinner stands before God as a debtor because of sin, and thankfully, that debt, having been paid, is now forgotten. God forgives us. He cleanses us. He separates our sin as far as the east is from the west to remember them no more. And then reconciliation. This is beautiful. In reconciliation, the sinner stands before, before God as an enemy and through Christ, get this, becomes his friend. In reconciliation, we stand before God as an enemy. And through Christ, we become his friend. And then, fifthly, the term adoption. And you know I love this term. is The sinner stands before God as a stranger and is made a son and a daughter. What a beautiful picture that is. Yet think about this. How do we get there? How do we get to that point where those five um, terms are playing out in our, our lives? In, in, in the book, To Lead is to Serve, Shar McBee retells an old story from the Talmud, which is the, the civil and the ceremonial law of, the, of Judaism. And she tells a story about a king and his son who loved each other, but they could not get along. See, 
that, has that ever played out before? But so eventually the son moved far away, and after some time, the son got sick, and the father suggested that he come home. The son, in his pride, replied, I cannot come home. And the king sent a second message saying, Just turn around and come as far as you can, and I will come to meet you wherever you are. Let, let me just say this. That sounds, that sounds like a great analogy for us and God. Except the biblical reality is not that God is in heaven asking us to try as hard as we can. God is not up in heaven saying, come as far to me as you can get, and I'll come the rest of the way. That's not the biblical picture. The biblical picture is we can bring nothing to the table. The biblical picture is that we can't, but thank God Jesus has. He has done it all, and therefore we are able to come to him because he has done it all. Yeah. Now, if you can't accept um, that and, and you don't, you're trying to figure out, well, what's my part in this? I have to have a part in this. I have to have something in the salvation. Let me tell you what your part is in salvation. You and I have done all the sinning, and God's done all the saving. <laughs> Just so we know, we've done all the sinning, and God has done all the saving. This is the, the picture of he has done for us what we could never do for ourselves. From a human standpoint, we can't even begin to fathom the depths of our reconciliation with God. In fact, I just told one story. Here's a better illustration of what has happened in our salvation. Gospel reconciliation is the equivalent to a judge who acquits a young man who actually killed the judge's son and then adopts that young man to become his own son. Can you imagine a judge standing a young man having killed the judge's son, and the judge says, you're guilty, I know you're guilty, but I'm going to set you free anyway. And not only am I going to set you free, but I'm going to bring you into my family, and you're going to become my son. Just think about the absurdity of that. that that's absurd, right? That's absurd. But that is exactly what God in Christ has done for us. We killed his son, Killed his son, and he has brought us into his family. So this morning, what I want us to do is I want us to unpack four truths that lift high the truth of reconciliation in Christ. And we're going to kind of start with some bad news and then a picture of a present reality, a future reality, and a, and a challenge along the way. So here's the first truth we're going to begin to unpack. First truth is the bad news. We were alienated from God. This is the bad news. And this is not just me. This is all of us were alienated from God. Listen to what Paul says. You who once were alienated, hostile in mind, doing evil deeds. So Paul begins with the bad news first. And the point is, we can only, we can only appreciate the good news when we understand the bad news. If we don't understand the bad news, we'll never appreciate the, the good news. We'll never understand um, the, the picture of what Christ has done for us. So we want to understand that the, the good news is so good because the bad news is so bad. So after this beautiful matchless description of Christ that Paul gives in verses 15 through 20, uh, who Christ is, who he, he forever will be, Paul then dissects the spiritual condition of unconverted man, that we were, un, or we were alienated, excuse me, we were hostile to mind, we were, we were doing evil deeds. One pastor put it this way, listen to this, the Bible teaches that you and I prefer creation to the creator, 
Therefore, and let's see if this is a great picture of your life. Therefore, we get stuck in the cul-de-sac of stupidity. Most of our lives, chasing things that do not satisfy us, have never satisfied us, and never have any hope of satisfying us, but we continue to circle the cul-de-sac anyway. I mean, this is the perfect picture. We're in the cul-de-sac of stupidity, chasing things that will never satisfy us. But here we are, circling it over and over and over again. And that is our human condition apart from Christ. We're alienated from God, which means we'll never truly be satisfied because we're stuck in this cul-de-sac. And what normally happens in our alienation is that we are seeking from the creation We are seeking from stuff, we're seeking from others what stuff and others cannot ever give to us. They cannot give to us, and because we can't get what we want, we get hostile in our minds. So think about this, we're alienated and then we become hostile in our minds, which means when you and I become hostile in mind, somebody has to be blamed. And guess what? We're not going to blame ourselves, because in our sinful condition, it's never our fault. It's never our fault doesn't matter. The common denominator theory doesn't work with sinful people. I try to say that all the time. If everywhere you go there's a problem, it might not be everybody else. It might be you, but it doesn't work for sinful people. It just doesn't. People don't get that picture. It just doesn't happen. So we begin to blame other people. And think about this. We start blaming our, our spouses. It's their fault. They're holding us back from being all that we want to be or thought we would be. Then we start blaming our children because our children aren't fulfilling our desires. They're not fulfilling where we fell short. They're not, they're not fulfilling that. And that plays itself out every Saturday on the ball fields of, of men and women who are wanting their kids to be what they never were. And they're putting these expectations on there. You see it every Saturday and every day on ball fields of parents trying to get their kids to fulfill their dreams and their hopes. And then we, we blame our parents. It's our parents' fault. And let me just say this. I know that some in this room have probably dealt with things from parental issues that I can't even begin to imagine. Things forced upon you that you would never wish. And, I, you know, I, you can't change that. I, I, I can't just understand that. But, but you are choosing how you're working that out whether you're allowing that to control you and the hate feeding that, whether you're seeking reconciliation and peace in that. Some of us then, we blame our work. We blame coworkers. They're the reason we're not getting ahead. They're the reason we're not succeeding. We blame everything. We blame everyone. And then get this, we blame God. We start blaming God, which is the height of our alienation. Get this. We don't trust God. We won't surrender to God. We truly don't believe God, but we want to blame God. Isn't that that amazing? We don't want to follow God. We don't want God to have any part of our lives. We really don't believe him, but it's his fault. This is the picture of our alienation from God. So our hostility towards God plays itself out in the fact that us, apart from Christ, we love what God hates, and we hate what God loves. It's an ongoing picture. And let me just ask a question this morning. Do you remember a time when that was true of you? Do you remember a time when that was true of you? And writing to the Ephesian church, Paul said this, Remember that you were at that time separated from God. And then he says this, Having no hope and without God in this world. 
Do you remember a time where you were in this world without God, without hope, separated from him? Because you were. Might still be. I don't know, but I know you were. And the problem is sometimes we forget that that's who we once were. How in the world does Satan let us or lead us to forget who we once were apart from Christ. There was a time when all of us who are now Christians were alienated from God. There was a time that we did not have any use for God. We did not consider him to be important. We began each day, we ended each day without ever even having a thought of him. Our lives centered around our own plans. We did what was right only in our own eyes. God was non-existent to us because we cut him out of our thinking even though he was sustaining every part of our lives we ended up as Paul described hostile in mind and then when you're hostile in mind it always leads to what Paul says doing evil deeds so hostility in mind always leads to evil deeds for bad beliefs will always lead to bad behavior say it again bad beliefs will always lead to bad behavior But let me just say this, brothers and sisters, alienation is an ugly word. It's an ugly word. And it's a word that Paul uses on purpose to show us the reality of where we once were or where we might be apart from God, separated from God because of our sin. That's a terrible before before picture. We live in a world of before and after pictures. That is every one of our before pictures, alienated from God. But thankfully, Paul doesn't separate the good news or bad news from the good news. He includes the good news. Second truth is this. Not only were we um, alienated from God, secondly, we were reconciled to God. So we were reconciled to God. And and Paul kind of includes this in verse 20 where we were last week when he says, through him to reconcile to himself all things. But then he says, getting into verse 22, he says, he has now reconciled in his body of the flesh, by his death. So this picture, Christ has reconciled us. I, I love the way that the NIV and the, the Christian Standard Bible interpret the first two words of verse 22. They interpret it to say this, that you were alienated from God, you were hostile, you were doing evil deeds, but then the first two words say, but now. But now. This is what Christ has done for you. Listen, we can never ignore what we were. Satan wants us to. Let me tell you why Satan wants us to forget where we were. Because when we forget where we were, we begin to accuse non-Christians for acting just like we used to. And we don't see their greatest need as Christ. We see their greatest need as not, not rubbing us the wrong way. And, and us being able to endure them instead of seeing them for what we once were. So we can't ignore that. If we do, blame and frustration is going to be the bar at which we, we live. But here's the point. The answer to our alienation, all of our alienation, is that Christ in his flesh, by his death, reconciles us to God. So in his flesh, in the incarnation, where Jesus came and took on flesh, God in the flesh came and lived a perfect life, spotless, blameless, above reproach kind of life. He did not sin. He was tempted in every way, yet without sin is what the Bible says. He died on the cross. He was resurrected three days later. And this is the gospel. The gospel is that God takes him, Jesus, who knew no sin, 
and makes him to be sin for us so that we might become God's righteousness in him. Think about this exchange. So in this exchange, Jesus gets our hostility, Jesus gets our evil deeds, and we get his righteousness. That's the worst trade ever. That's the worst trade in the history of all trades, but that is what happened for our reconciliation. We don't get that by our own acts. We don't get that by doing our own thing. We only get that by an act of Almighty God. That's the good news. Understand this, brothers and sisters. The good news is not clean yourself up and God might like you. That's not the good news. The good news is not do as good as you can. As long as your good outweighs your bad, you'll be okay. That's not the good news. The good news is that God in Christ has done for us what we could never do for ourselves. That is the good news, and that will forever be good news. Therefore, our hope will forever be bound in the crucifixion and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And through that, our alienation has been taken away. And through that, we have been reconciled to God. And our past has now been overshadowed by the words, but now. But now. But now. That's who you were, but now. This is who we are. We are reconciled to God through Christ, to the praise of his glory. Which leads us to the third truth. So we were alienated from God. We were reconciled to God. And the third is we will be presented to God. So we will be presented to God. So look at what Paul does in verse 22. So Paul gets to verse 22 and he says this. And you, he has now reconciled. And he says, by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. So what was the purpose of God reconciling us in Christ? And the purpose is so that Christ might present us holy and blameless before himself. So just follow with me here. We're born separated from God. We're born hostile in our minds. We're born um, pursuing evil deeds. But Christ doesn't leave us there. Doesn't leave us there. And many people question this verse and others like it saying, was Paul referring to our present life or is Paul referring to our, our future life? And let me just want to very quickly draw your attention to two realities. So the first reality is what we would call positional holiness. So positional holiness, meaning that when we are, bought, when we are born again, we are brought into a union with Christ. Um, this is why Paul, all throughout his letters, uses the phrase, in Christ, that you are in Christ. Everything that can be said of Christ is said of you. Or you are in Christ, meaning when God looks at you, he no longer sees you in your sin. He sees you covered in Christ. He sees the blood of Christ as a covering for you. He no longer sees you. He sees Christ in you, and he sees you in Christ. It's great and awesome. This is where we are positionally. We are in Christ. So that's something for us to celebrate. Do we understand how meaningful that is? That we are in Christ. We're found in Christ. But then the second reality is what's called progressive or practical holiness. So not just positional, but progressive or practical holiness, which means when we are saved, we then enter into a process where we are being changed by the Spirit of God um, more and more into the image of Christ. 
So we are working out our salvation with fear and trembling. God is working within us to produce that. We are seeking holiness. We're desiring more Christ-likeness. We're growing in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And God is doing that in us. But here's the issue. We don't always do that perfectly. And we mess up at that a whole lot. So the truth is this progressive practical holiness um, is not going to be perfected until one day, as the choir just sang, in a twinkling of an eye, we will be glorified. We will take on all that is perfect. We will see Christ and we will become like him. And Ephesians 5, Paul says this, Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, so dying for her, so that he might present the church to himself. Get that. Christ wants to present the church to himself without spot or wrinkle or any such thing that she might be holy and without blemish. Just think about that picture. Think about the picture of Christ going, Bride, come here. I want to introduce you to Christ. How are you doing? And this is a picture of Christ presenting the church that he died for, that he created to himself. And you might think to yourself, well, that just sounds kind of prideful. That sounds this, that sounds... No, when God is who God is, God gets those results. God knows who he is. He wants us to know who he is. And one day we will forever know who he is. So this is a picture of all this is happening, not just before men. It's happening before God will be presented to him holy and blameless with no sin ever to touch us again. So just let that sink in. Alienated from God, reconciled to God, one day presented to him. And that leads us to the last truth, which is this. We will remain faithful to God. And here's the bombshell that Paul drops on us in verse 23. And Paul says this. If indeed, if indeed, you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard. If indeed, if indeed. So scripture teaches us that faith has the quality of, get this, permanence. Meaning, meaning one who is truly born of God will go all the way faithfully to the end with God. This the picture of there's no way we can do that unless the Holy Spirit gives us the enablement, but the Holy Spirit has given us the enablement because the Holy Spirit has sealed us until the day of promise. Pastor J.D. Greer, in his book, great read, it's called Stop Asking Jesus in Your Heart, um, doesn't hold back in dealing with those who profess Jesus at some point in their life, but who show no evidence that they possess Christ. And in it, here's what he writes. Jesus warned that there are a vast number of people who seem assured of salvation that they don't actually possess. One afternoon, I was at a local basketball court, and I started a pickup game with a guy I'd seen there a few times. He was quite a character. He cursed like a sailor and boasted continually about how many girls he was sleeping with. He wasn't the kind of guy you'd suspect knew his way around the Bible. As we played our game, I began to share my story of how I came to Christ. About three sentences into it, he stopped, grabbed the ball, and said, Dude, are you trying to witness to me? That's awesome. No one has tried to witness to me in a long time. But don't worry about me. I went to youth camp when I was 13, and I asked Jesus to come into my heart. 
And I was legit. I became a super Christian. I went to youth group every week. I did the true love waits commitment thing. I memorized Bible verses. I went on mission trips. I even led other friends to Jesus. Then about two years after that, I discovered sex. And I didn't like the idea of God telling me who I could have sex with. So I decided to put God on hold for a while, and I quit believing in him altogether. I am now a happy atheist. But then get this. He doesn't just stop there. He added, but here's what's awesome. The church that I grew up in taught eternal security. That means once saved, always saved. That means I'm still saved, even if I don't believe in God anymore. Once saved, always saved, right? So either way, it works out great for me. To which Greer says, what do you say to a person like that? He had indeed asked Jesus into his heart. All indications were that he was sincere about it. He showed immediately, immediate fruit after his conversion, getting excited about Jesus and being busy for him. And the Bible does indeed teach eternal security. Once saved, always saved. So the question is, was he right? Can he, because he made a decision at some point in the past, live with the assurance that he is saved forever, regardless of how he lives now? Here's the short answer. No, he cannot. No, he cannot. And Greer goes on to write this. Salvation does indeed happen in a moment. And once you are saved, you are always saved. The mark, however, of someone who is saved is that they maintain their confession of faith until the end of their lives. Salvation is not a prayer you pray in a one-time ceremony and then move on from. Salvation is a posture of repentance and faith that you begin in a moment and maintain by the Spirit of God for the rest of your life. And here's the truth. Some people would call this the perseverance of the saints. We instead choose to lift high the perseverance of the Savior. Meaning this, who Jesus saves, he keeps. Who he keeps, he presents to himself, holy and blameless, all for his glory. This is what we believe. This is the picture. In fact, some of you in here might be saying, well, I don't believe that. I don't, I don't believe once saved, always saved. Well, I, I would say um, you're believing maybe probably in personal experience and not by the word of God. Because the word of God, think about what John says in 1 John 2. John says, they went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. Um, the, Okay, thank you, Apostle John, um, for telling us this picture. If they would have been of us, guess where they would still be? With us. That's what he says. They would still be with us. Let's not look past that. So God's purpose is to create a people, holy people, in Christ for himself. This involves a, a past work, what Christ has done for us. It involves a present reality that we are striving for holiness Failing, but striving, and it also um, involves a future glory. And think about this. For any in here this morning, that as, as we're talking, you're, you're sensing an alienation from God. You're sensing a separation from God. You're sensing that there's something between you and God. Let me say, like the Apostle Paul said to the church at Corinth, he said, I implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. On behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God not your doing but because of what God in Christ has already done for you place your faith and your trust in Jesus 
Turn from your sin. Turn from trusting in yourself. Turn to Jesus Christ alone and he will save you. He will reconcile you to God. He will take that hole in your heart, that hole in your life, and he will fill it with himself. And he will fill it in a way that will bring you utmost, utmost joy forever. Nelson Mandela, we, most of us know the story, he spent 27 years, 10,000 days in prison for conspiracy to overthrow the South African government. But after his release, he said this, As I finally walked through those gates, I felt, even at the age of 71, that my life was beginning anew. Even at the age of 71, I felt like my life was beginning anew. And let me just say this. That in and of itself is a glimpse of the testimony of all who have been reconciled to God and Christ. That regardless of what age that happens, you were beginning your life anew. You were beginning your life anew. And here's the question. Is that your testimony? Oh, to God that it would be. That you have seen that there was a time in your life where you were separated from God because of your sin, alienated from God, and God in Christ. Christ did for you what you could never do for yourself. Died for you so that if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. And then God begins to work in you for his glory here and now. We'll never be perfect, but we don't just give up. We don't just stop. We continue on because that is the, the picture of those who are truly saved. Continue to the end because of the Spirit's work in us. And we look forward to a future hope. A future hope that nothing can take away from us. Nothing can take that away from us. So I'm going to ask you to go ahead and stand. I'm going to ask Brother Frank and the musicians to come forward as we enter into our time of invitation and consecration, just saying that whatever the Spirit is saying to you in this moment that you would do, the Bible says where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty, there's freedom. We believe that the Spirit of the Lord is here, therefore there's freedom to do whatever God is telling you to do. So let's pray together. Father, we come before you. We recognize, God, where we were or where some of us maybe are that we were alienated from you, God. We were separated from you because of our sin. God, I pray for that person today that's still there, that you would help them in this moment to turn away from themselves and to turn for the first time, God, to Jesus. Turn to Jesus. Trust him, Savior and Lord. Cry out to him. Ask him to save them, to forgive them. Confess that you believe that he died on the cross for your sins, that he rose again. Oh, that salvation would happen in this moment. But also, Father, we pray for those of us as believers that have somehow forgotten. For we've forgotten, God, that there was a time that we were alienated from you. God, help us today, Lord, just to remember that. Not because of guilt or because of shame, but so that we can, God, have pity on those who are still alienated from you so that we can look with with concern god with compassion upon those who as jesus saw were as sheep without a shepherd oh god help us to see people the way you see people father help us god to lift high to lift high father what you have done for us
Lord, we know we are not perfect, and we know there are times, God, that we fall. But we thank you, Lord, that your word tells us that a righteous person may fall seven times but rises again. And we just thank you for your help in lifting us up time and time again and forgiving us and cleansing us of all unrighteousness. All that we are is yours. All that we forever will be, God, is yours. We hope in you. Finish this time in Jesus' name. Amen.